Father, so grateful that we belong to you and that you're so good and so loving. And I pray today for a revelation for all of us. Just increase our understanding of how much you love us and let it go from our head down into our heart and soul and that it really impact the way we live our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was this guy, and he was a great Viking warrior. And his name was Rudolph. And he had red hair, and so they began to call him Rudolph the Red. And he was known far and wide for his wisdom and his experience. And one day, while he was enjoying morning coffee, morning coffee with his wife, he was staring out the window. He turned to his wife and said, it looks like a storm is coming. And his wife said, how can you be sure? To which he replied, Rudolph the Red knows rain, dear. Well, in a couple of months, Christmas will be upon us. You wondered how I was going to tie that in, didn't you? But it's a time when many will be thinking about the meaning of Christmas. And of course, we all know the meaning of Christmas really is all about the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I mean, God loves us, and he demonstrated it in no uncertain terms. I mean, he sent his one and only son to come and not just grow up and show us what the father's like, live a sinless life, but then to go to the cross and bear all of our sin, shame, guilt, absorb the judgment that was due us. He takes our place. You know, a lot of times I think when we talk about the love of God, a lot of people have a hard time really grasping it and making it something that they can embrace themselves. So what I'd like to do this morning is I want us to unpack it a little bit, unpack what it means to really know that God loves you. And what I'd like to do is uh, focus on a passage that Jesus is speaking in, in which I think he gives us practical insight into truly being able to understand what love looks like. And that passage is in Luke chapter 7, and we'll start in verse 36. Let's pick it up, Luke 7, verse 36. You can follow along in your Bibles. We'll have the verses on the screen as well. Luke 7, 36 starts like this. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. So one of the Pharisees requested Jesus. He's inviting him to come be his dinner guest. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, let's stop there because... We need to understand that the term Pharisee means separated ones. They were concerned about the moral drift of society, and they would have nothing to do with it. They stood against it, and they tried to turn things around. And they understood that the way to go was the law of Moses. That was the way to go. And they were very careful to obey it the best they could. In fact, they're so careful to obey the law of Moses that they amplified it. They added to it just to make sure they didn't violate any of the rules. Now, we really don't know what prompted this invitation 
by this Pharisee to invite Jesus to dine with him. We don't know what prompted it. Now, it does, it does not seem that this Pharisee, we later learn his name is Simon, there's no reason for us to believe in his passage that he believed in Jesus or loved Jesus or even liked Jesus because he did not extend to Jesus the normal hospitality that you would in that day. I mean, common courtesy in that day would have been as soon as Jesus entered the house of Simon, he would have been, first of all, greeted with a kiss, then his feet would have been washed, and then his head would have been anointed with oil. That was a common courtesy of the day for an invited guest. Now, Simon seems to have purposefully omitted those common courtesies. And not only did he omit those, that was communicating really, in a sense, a a level of contempt toward Jesus. I mean, he carefully avoided every custom that would have made Jesus feel welcome in his home. And you cannot help but think that the other guests noticed that he did that. Now, what was Simon the Pharisee's motive in how he was disrespecting Jesus? Was he wanting a confrontation? Was that what he wanted? Was, he, was his goal to, to get him around that dinner table and maybe set him right about a few things he's heard him teach? Well, we don't know what the motivation was or what the goal was because there was a remarkable intrusion at that moment in the dinner. Let's pick up this intrusion in verse 37. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, it's important that we understand what this scene looked like so this makes sense to us. It was normative in those days that a dinner party would recline around a very low table to the ground. They would recline with, on their left elbow, recline with their feet away from the table, So they're on their left side, leaning on the ground with their left elbow, eating with their right hand, with their feet away from the table. So a picture of that. It's also customary in those days that there would have been several servants in in a very formal dinner party like this, ready to welcome all the guests. And when a celebrity would come to one of these dinner parties, Oftentimes, the servants would invite their family members to kind of look through the windows and see this very special gathering. So you need to imagine that this gathering, it probably might have even had kind of an open, at least one wall or two walls open with a courtyard, but this gathering would have had a bit of an audience, even a bit of a crowd of people standing around watching this dinner. So kind of have that scene in your mind. Now, on this particular occasion, while Jesus is in the Pharisee's house, in the crowd arrives a woman. 
And she has this unsavory reputation in that town. She's called a sinner. A very specialized term, meaning that, meaning that uh, she was known for her sexual promiscuity. She had that reputation. She was either an adulterous woman or she was the town prostitute. Now, to everyone's amazement, this woman comes out of the crowd. And she goes and stands at the feet of Jesus. Again, have that scene in your mind. He's reclined his feet away from the table, as all of their feet would be. She stands at his feet, and she takes this alabaster container of perfume, and she breaks it, and she pours it over his feet. And at that moment, she is so overcome with just her, being in his presence, she burst into tears. Picture that. Now she's terribly embarrassed about the tears that are landing on his feet. So she undoes her hair and she wipes the tears off with her hair. So she bends over down to the ground with her hair and she's wiping the tears off his feet. Now remember, this was a religious gathering. A woman like this was not welcome to such an event. In fact, her typical dress probably was provocative, and no doubt, it was probably entirely inappropriate for her to be in this room on this occasion, at least in the mentality of all those around that table. Her actions, I guess you could even say the sensuality of her behavior at that moment was even downright scandalous. Letting her tears fall on Jesus' Jesus's feet was extremely intimate. Then she wiped them with her loosened hair. She had to loosen it to use her hair, obviously. The only time a decent woman ever loosened her hair in this culture was in the privacy of her own bedchamber. Next, she empties her perfume onto Jesus' feet. The fragrance fills the room. Imagine now the smell has all filled the room. But as she takes that perfume, and now she's massaging it into his feet. At this point, you can be sure that no one's sitting around the table saying, please pass the potatoes. <laughs> I mean, nobody's eating at this point. They're not speaking. They're just watching this woman and Jesus. They were shocked and offended, not just by the woman's behavior. That shocked them for sure. But at Jesus' response, I mean, he seemed quite comfortable in her presence and her public and awkward public display of, of affection. Let's pick it up in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he's thinking this, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him that she is a sinner. So Simon the Pharisee in the text said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, you already know he's cynical about it. You already know he doesn't really, he's not convinced about it. If this man were a prophet, now he's got confirmation. If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, and he would know her reputation. So now we see Simon's mind working here. He, we see his cynicism and his skepticism. 
We, know, we already know he has a low view of Jesus, the way he treated Jesus when he came into the house. He already suspects that Jesus isn't a prophet. He suspects it. And now he's got proof. He's got proof for his presuppositions. But Jesus is a prophet, and he knows exactly what Simon is thinking. So Jesus is now going to take this situation, and he's going to teach something. Verse 40, And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. It's interesting, the text says, Jesus answered him. I love it. Simon didn't say anything. Jesus answers him anyway. And he says, Simon, may I tell you a story? And Simon basically says, tell on, teacher. At this point, he's just being, teacher's more of a, just a courteous term at this point. So Jesus tells a story. Here we go, verse 41. Here's the story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Notice notice something here that when he says the moneylender canceled the debt, the word used here is he forgave them. He forgave them. To forgive is basically to cancel a debt. But remember, when the moneylender realizes he's not going to get his money back, he has to bear the cost himself. Keep that in mind. Because that's the essence of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not just saying, I'll forget about it. Forgiveness is saying, I no longer hold you responsible, and I will assume the loss myself. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had... Two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Jesus turns toward the woman. Now, get this picture. He turns... To the woman says, do you see this woman? Of course Simon has not taken his eyes off this woman since she entered the room. Neither have any other of these fine, upstanding men around this table. Simon has seen this woman all right, but all he has seen is her sin. But Jesus saw something very different when he looked at the woman than when Simon looked at her. I think Jesus saw whatever woundedness and desperation really led her to such a life. I think he saw probably the abuse, the exploitation that she had suffered at the hands of men. He saw the guilt and the shame that kept her trapped in this destructive lifestyle. Jesus looked beyond the woman's sin and he saw her need. Now keep in mind, that this woman is probably owned, really only known two responses from men in that town. Those two responses are lust and judgment. And chances are every man in that room has either exploited her or condemned her. 
But Jesus saw something more than just her, you know, sinfulness. He saw a human being. He saw someone made in the image of God. He saw someone who needed love and acceptance and forgiveness. And so notice what, I want you to notice what Jesus didn't do. He didn't pull away in embarrassment when she did what she did to save his reputation. He didn't rebuke her for her life right at that moment, even though he knew all about it. He didn't correct her awkward expression of worship. That's what the Pharisees in the room expected a prophet to do. But Jesus didn't respond in any expected fashion. Verse 44. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he was forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, and now Jesus turns to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And those who are reclining at the table with him, they begin to say to themselves, now they're talking to each other, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, he's still looking at her. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus saw this woman very differently than the Pharisees saw her. He graciously received her extravagant and unorthodox display of affection. Jesus receives it. He rose to her defense when those around the table wanted to pass judgment on her. I want you to think of it kind of this way. If, if you found a priceless Rembrandt painting, but it was covered with mud, I mean, would you focus on the Rembrandt painting and just be, and think about it, or would you focus on the mud? Hopefully, you'd focus on the painting, and you'd recognize, of course, that it's a masterpiece. It has great worth, the painting. Now, eventually, you'd have to do something about the mud. You'd have to find an expert who could clean it up without damaging the painting. But your initial response, your heart's response, would be enthusiasm for this Rembrandt. What that sinful, when that sinful woman, when she walked into that room, Jesus, I believe, saw a masterpiece. But all Simon saw was the mud. Jesus saw a woman created in God's image for eternal glory. And all Simon saw was her inappropriate dress. All Simon saw was her embarrassing behavior. This is embarrassing. My house, this is happening. I think Jesus saw her potential as a human being. And all Simon saw was her sinful past. You know, I think even when we read the story, as many of us are followers of Christ, I think it's easy for us to be quick to condemn, you know, Simon and the Pharisees' reaction and just say, oh, man, those Pharisees. 
How could they be so clueless? How could they be so hard-hearted? But the sad truth is this kind of thing happens in churches all the time. It's happening on this morning around the country and around the world in many situations. You know, we have a saying here that we have communicated in many different ways to our community, and that is, come as you are, you'll be loved. We mean it. Come as you are, you'll be loved. We want to welcome people to our church no matter what they have lived like, what they look like, what they smell like, without passing any judgment. And patiently, lovingly, graciously lead people to Jesus who alone can save them and who alone can change them. I've actually thought about adding something to that little phrase, come as you're all beloved. I've actually thought about putting underneath it, no perfect people allowed. Now, of course, we know there are no perfect people, but just in case some think they're pretty darn close. I like them to stay away, actually, because we don't need a judgmental attitude in this house. So Jesus tells the story, wonderful story, but now he begins the interpretation. He says, Simon, let me tell you this little story, but just in case uh, you haven't really got the interpretation, let me help you with that. Who do you feel of those two people would be the most grateful? And Jesus says, well, of course, the the most grateful is the one who expressed the most loving gratitude to the moneylender. And Simon, of course, reluctantly says, well, I guess that's right. The one who's forgiven most would love most. Jesus says, you're absolutely right. Now then, Simon, let me point out something to you. When I arrived here today, it's your invitation. I was rather surprised that I was not greeted by the customary kiss on the cheek. Not only that, I was surprised that you didn't have any servants come and wash my feet with a bowl of water and a towel. Not only that, but you didn't give me the usual anointing oil to anoint my head for the, so I can be ready to gather at the table. Now then, Simon, in marked contrast, you didn't give me a bowl of water for my feet, but this woman has been washing my feet with her tears. And you gave me no ointment to anoint my head, but this woman has poured, has anointed my feet with perfume. You did not welcome me with a kiss, but she's been kissing my feet persistently. So Simon, you get the point. This woman has made an exaggerated, expressive exhibition of love. And I didn't see any of that from you, Simon. None. Yet you criticize her? Simon, has it ever dawned on you that those who really understand the wonders of forgiveness are the ones who demonstrate loving gratitude? Simon, I wonder, could it be the reason that you're expressing so little love for me is that you have so little concept of your need for forgiveness and the forgiveness that I can bring? Then he turns to the woman and says, woman, I want you to know something. Your faith has saved you. Your faith. And you're forgiven. Go in peace. 
I think he also is like, I, and I want you to know I deeply appreciate your expression of gratitude and worship and love to me. So there's the story. Now, what are the lessons of that story for us? You know, Jesus tells stories. He always has lessons for us to learn. So I'd just like to walk through some lessons I think the Lord has for us from that story. Lesson number one. There are different kinds of sins because there are different kinds of sinners. But everyone needs the same thing. Forgiveness. It's perfectly obvious, according to our story, that Simon needs to be forgiven too, doesn't he? It's equally obvious that the woman course, needs to be forgiven. But there's no similarity between their two lifestyles. The one is infamous in this town. The other, highly respectable in the town. Which leads us to a very simple conclusion. There's two kinds of sin because there's two kinds of sinners. There's notorious sins because committed by the disrespected sinners of society. And then there's respectable sins committed by the respectable sinners of society. You know, that's really, I think, a hard lesson sometimes for us to learn. You see, the thing that Simon didn't grasp, and the thing that I think so many people don't grasp, is that you can live according to socially accepted norms, respectable norms, and, but that does not mean you're clear with God. Granted, there are some people who really have made a, a mess of their lives, but that doesn't mean that those who haven't made a mess of their lives are somehow guiltless. I was at a, one time I was at a, a fire station here in Arlington, and I was just sharing the gospel with some firemen. And as I was sharing some gospel, the gospel with these firemen, just, just a few guys, and we're just sitting talking, 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 and two, two guys came in kind of in the middle of the conversation. And I was talking about, you know, sin and our need for forgiveness. And one guy, he just walked right up to the group, just chimed right in and said, you want to see some real sinners? I'll take you to some real sinners. Of course, the implication being that he wasn't one of those. See, in his mind, he was respectable. He was a respectable sinner. Either way, you need forgiveness. So I wonder what, my, and I think about this story, I wonder what made Simon a Pharisee. And my guess is he probably was born into a Pharisaic family, most likely. And I think, I wonder what made this woman sexually promiscuous. Now, I don't know. Maybe she was abused as a child. Maybe she was severely neglected and just longed for some type of acceptance. Or could it conceivably be that her husband had announced that he was divorcing her and he'd put her out in the street? And the only way she could actually make a living, at least in her mind, was through prostitution. I have no idea how she got there. But something happened to her that caused her to at least be predisposed to the choices that she's making. But regardless of whether or not you're a respectable sinner or a notorious criminal, we all need the same thing. Amen? We all need forgiveness, and only Jesus can give it to us. First lesson. Second lesson I think we learn from the story is Jesus Christ is prepared to forgive our sin. 
whether it's the notorious variety or the respectable variety, he's prepared at this very moment to forgive our sin. Remember, the moneylender forgave the people who couldn't repay him. How? By assuming their debts himself. He took the debt himself. The moneylender has got to pay the price of them not paying him back. Well, that's what Jesus came to do on the cross. He came to pay our debts himself and pay the price we couldn't pay, absorbing our judgment. But here's the truth, whether you're in this room or you're online, that Jesus is ready to forgive your sin today, no matter what kind of sin it is. He is ready and willing and wants to forgive your sin. And all you got to do is ask him. I mean, just simply turn to him and say, Jesus, would you be my Savior today? Ask him and mean it. And that changes everything. Lesson number three. Another lesson I think we can learn from the story is that the only way you receive forgiveness is by faith. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Remember? Your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. The point being, we cannot earn forgiveness. We can't earn it. The money lender offers it at grace cost to himself, and we accept it with humble hands. We just accept it with gratitude. Lesson number four. The next lesson we can learn from the story is this, that those who, whose sins are, are forgiven are commanded to go in peace. Not in pieces. In peace. They're commanded to go away from that experience of forgiveness with this great load lifted off. All the sin, shame, guilt. And go in peace. No more condemnation. No more guilt. No more shame. In fact, I'd like to do something right now. I'd like to ask everyone just to stand to your feet. Just a second, if you would. Just all stand. And I want to just pronounce over everyone who has repented and believes in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. I just want to pronounce this over you. In Jesus' name, you are forgiven. But I want to pronounce something else to you. All those who know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I want to pronounce this. Go in peace. No more shame. No more guilt. No more condemnation. Go in peace. Amen? You may be seated. The fifth lesson that we notice about this story, it teaches us, I think, that it is perfectly understandable and appropriate that those who understand this amazing forgiveness, this gracious forgiveness, find in them an upsurge of gratitude that wants to express itself in worship and devotion to the one who forgave us. You know, sometimes visitors come to our church and or new member, newcomers, and they wonder why so many people are, are worshiping with such passion, such gratitude, such devotion. And if they ask me, I say, you know why? Because they know they've been forgiven much. That's why they love much. I want to encourage you, don't ever hesitate to express your devotion and worship and gratitude to him because he deserves it. And don't ever worry about what other people are thinking. I think this woman, she didn't worry about what everyone else think, was thinking in that room, did she? 
fact, I'm not sure she notices anyone else was in the room. Final lesson we learned from the story, and that is what loving much looks like. You know, this week in our Knowing God series, we're talking about the love of God. And I think Jesus actually tells us what loving much looks like. If you ever wonder what, 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 if someone really loves you a lot or not, is there a way to know? And Jesus is about to tell us. There's a way to know. There's a way to know if someone really loves you a lot, or there's also a way to know if you really love someone a lot. There's a way. Jesus tells us. Verse 47, <clears throat> he says, For she loved much. So Jesus is actually now going to tell us what that looks like, what loving much looks like. Let's look at verse 44. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. She gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You know, there's a book that I recommend when I do premarital counseling to couples it's a book that kind of surprises people why I'd recommend that, and it's a book entitled How to Really Love Your Child by Campbell. And he talks about the importance of eye contact, physical touch, and focused attention. I give that book because I think it's a helpful book on how to really love anyone because focused attention is so important whether or not someone is going to feel like you love them or not that they get your focused attention. Loving much means giving someone your focused attention. And this woman in this story, again, I think that she is so focused on Jesus, giving her attention to him, I really honestly don't think she notices anyone else in the room. And that's what loving much looks like. That's how it looks in a marriage. That's how it looks with children. That's how it looks in a friendship. That's how it looks with a neighbor. Loving much means giving someone your focused attention. I read a story about a father who had just turned 50 years old, and he had an 11-year-old son. His name was Ricky, and, and his father's sitting in his recliner in the living room, and the 11-year-old son runs in and jumps on his lap and starts kissing him on his cheek as fast as he could. And his father's like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? He says, it's, 50, it's your 50th birthday. I'm giving you 50 kisses. And the father said, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, not, let's not do that right now. And Ricky got off his lap and Normally, his father would have received it, but his father was kind of feeling grumpy that day, depressed, irritable. So let's just do that some other time. So Ricky gets off his lap and go gets on his bike to go on a bike ride, goes out into the street, gets run over by a car, and he's killed. I mean, can you imagine the grief and the remorse suffered by, I think, that poor father? Well, I think his story tells us several things. First of all, because life is so unpredictable, uncertain, we cannot know or plan how many opportunities we're going to get to communicate love to someone. We must take advantage of those opportunities because, you know, we get fewer than we may realize. I think a second thing from that little illustration that I want to point out is that those kind of moments of Ricky sitting on your lap, 50 kisses, those kind of moments don't happen very often. I mean, that moment was precious and priceless. And when we get those kinds of moments, we need to embrace them, hold on to them. But loving much means giving someone your focused attention. There's a, there's a diary of a great uh, humanitarian that was found, and, and in his diary, there's one particular date in which he said, I went fishing with my son today. He seemed bored and preoccupied, didn't say very much. 
probably won't take them again. Well, someone came across a story and came across that, uh, those notes, and he de they decided to track down whether or not the son actually wrote anything down, and, and the son did, in fact, write something down that very day. In his diary, the son exclaimed, What a perfect day, all alone with my father. He goes on to describe how meaningful and important it was. See, loving much means giving someone your focused attention. We show our love to God by giving him our focused attention in our worship, in our prayers, in our walk with him. And we show other people our love for them by giving our focused attention. But there's more to that. Jesus is about to explain more about what loving much looks like. Verse, 70, verse 45, he said, you, you gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. And I'd say another way that loving much, we, we know that there's great love is there is expressed affection. Expressed affection is loving much. Expressing your affection to God is loving much. But also showing appropriate affection to others is loving much. Whether and it's different in different cultures, a handshake, a hug, an appropriate kiss. This last week I've been in Cuba and helping lead a, been leading a pastor's conference and helping with a new church plant in Cuba. And the Cuban people are very affectionate. And even if you're just meeting for the first time, it's, it's right cheek to right cheek with a kiss. The kiss is kind of in the air, and if, you're, if you know them, the kiss is a sideways kiss. And if you really know them, it's a kiss. <laughs> but, I was, but that's a one-cheek country. I was in a two-cheek country when I was in Turkey, and I said, you know, it's two different cheeks. I've been in some three-cheek countries where it's one, two, three. And sometimes I actually get a little confused. And so one time I was somewhere, and I was thinking, where am I? And I didn't know what to do, and he didn't know where I was going, and we just bumped heads. I thought, I just started a new thing, the head bump. But affection is important in communicating love. After my, my father had his first heart attack, he became a hugger. My dad was never a hugger, but he almost died. He came very, very close to death. The Lord spared his life, gave him many years after that. But I remember coming home the first time after he got out of the hospital, and he's in the house, and I came to just, you know, normally it was just kind of a, a handshake for my dad. But I came, and I, came, I had my hand out ready for a handshake. Hey, Dad, good to see you. And he's like, push that aside, and he bear hugged me. And he's holding me. I mean, I really was enjoying it because, yeah, this is, this is great. My dad's hugging me. But he wouldn't let go even. And he's squeezing. And I just thought, he's, he's different now. See, I think you realize, being close to death, that here's something I really, I've been around a lot of, I've been in a lot of, beside a lot of deathbeds in my time. And when you when you're think you're close to death, there's two things that matter to you. That is, who you love and who loves you. That's what matters. And that's, what, that's where he was right then. And, and he realized that he, this is his family, and he was holding what he'd almost lost. And so, what does much love look like? We express it somehow. Or we express our affection. But there's one more way this woman models for us what loving much looks like. Verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. I'd say this means that loving much is sacrificial giving. I mean, this was a very expensive act of love for this woman. This perfume cost her 
an awful lot, and she pours it. She pours it all out. She didn't put a little dab of dewy on it. She pours it out on Jesus. Very costly act for her because of her great love. The truth is this, love gives. Love gives. Great love gives great gifts. Our love can only be, you know, our love really can be measured by our gifts. It really is true. And, of course, God is the best model of this. For God so loved that he gave his only son. I want you to notice two principles from this well-known verse, John 3.16. That is, number one, true love always shows itself in giving. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. And secondly, the gifts we give reflect the love we have. Small gifts flow from small love. And great gifts flow from great love. And, of course, God models the greatest love of all because he gave the greatest gift of all. That's simple. So based on these two principles, we can know how much someone loves us and we can know how much we love someone else. I mean, if you ever want to know how, much, how someone really feels about you, you can measure it. You really can. You measure it by their gifts. Love gives. Small love gives small gifts. Great love gives great gifts. Now, I want to clarify something. I'm not talking about how much the gift costs. I'm talking about how much the gift costs the giver. There's nothing more costly that God could give to us than what he gave us. Nothing more costly than his son, his only son. I don't think there's anything more costly that woman could have given Jesus that day than that perfume. So what does loving much look looks like? It's sacrificial. I think at this point it might be easy to get a little defensive and say, yeah, I could give more time, but you don't understand, I'm busy. I could give more money, but you don't understand, I'm broke. I could give more energy, but you don't understand, I'm bushed. But what's interesting is love finds a way. Love finds a way to give. Love finds a way. This woman found a way to give the best she had. Now, of course, this message has really been about the love of God, but I think the evidence that you really, we really get his love is that we start loving him back and loving other people. We love because he first loved us. When we get it, the more we get it, the more we love. But I want to close by really camping down on how much he loves us. There was something done, I think, uh, you know, many, over tw about 20 years ago, <clears throat> a little over 20 years ago, called this Father's Love Letter. And it's just a... Just a speaking of verses and, and really telling the story of how God feels about you. Some of you heard it before. I've heard it so many times, and I still blessed every time I sit and listen to it. And so I want you just now, just to, to let this just wash over you as we play this video, and, we, and then we'll close in prayer about how God feels about you. Let's play this video. The words you are about to experience are true. They will change your life if you let them. For they come from the very heart of God. He loves you. And He is the Father you have been looking for all your life. This is His love letter to you.
my child. You may not know me, but I know everything about you. I know when you sit down and when you rise up. I'm familiar with all your ways. Even the very hairs on your head are numbered. For you were made in my image. In me, you live and move and have your being. For you are my offspring. I knew you even before you were conceived. I chose you when I planned creation. You were not a mistake. For all your days are written in my book. I determined the exact time of your birth and where you would live. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb and brought you forth on the day you were born. I have been misrepresented by those who don't know me. I am not distant and angry, but am the complete expression of love. And it is my desire to lavish my love on you, simply because you are my child and I am your father. I offer you more than your earthly father ever could, for I am the perfect father. Every good gift that you receive comes from my hand, for I am your provider and I meet all your needs. My plan for your future has always been filled with hope because I love you with an everlasting love. My thoughts toward you are countless as the sand on the seashore and I rejoice over you with singing. I will never stop doing good to you for you are my treasured possession. I desire to establish you with all my heart and all my soul and I want to show you great and marvelous things. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Delight in me and I will give you the desires of your heart. For it is I who gave you those desires. I am able to do more for you than you could possibly imagine. For I am your greatest encourager. I am also the Father who comforts you in all your troubles. When you are brokenhearted, I am close to you. As a shepherd carries a lamb, I have carried you close to my heart. One day, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and I'll take away all the pain you have suffered on this earth. I am your father, and I love you even as I love my son Jesus. For in Jesus, my love for you is revealed. He is the exact representation of my being. He came to demonstrate that I am for you, not against you, and to tell you that I am not counting your sins. Jesus died so that you and I could be reconciled. His death was the ultimate expression of my love for you. I gave up everything I loved that I might gain your love. If you receive the gift of my son Jesus, you receive me. And nothing will ever separate you from my love again. 
come home and I'll throw the biggest party heaven has ever seen. I have always been father, and will always be father. My question is, will you be my child? I am waiting for you. Love, your dad, Almighty God. Let's go ahead and stand up, and we're going to close here in prayer. If you have any questions for our staff, there will be a Connection Coffee in this corner. If this is your first Sunday, I'd love to meet you. We're in this welcome corner. And we'll have some leader couples up here that will be glad to pray for you for any needs that you have. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that you are the way you are and that you love us. We're so glad that we belong to you. And I pray that we would just be able to really walk with a greater understanding, comprehension of your great love for us this week. And as we do, Lord, that we become better lovers ourselves, loving people much, because we love because you first loved us. Lord, we pray that you'd use us this week to really communicate the truth to people around us. Lord, let us really be the light of Christ now in all the places that we, that we live, work, recreate, go to school this week, and uh, really draw people to yourself. Commit ourselves to you, our families to you, and ask that you get the most glory possible. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great day, great week.